If you're a California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the California Underground. Your host, Phil. Happy belated Thanksgiving. Hope you had a good time uh, hanging out with friends and family and enjoying eating a lot of food and passing out on the couch and whatever you do on Thanksgiving. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you had a good time. Uh, you met up with people. You laughed. You shared stories. You caught up with people you haven't seen in a while. Um, and I, I hope you all stayed safe. And, and um, yeah, I hope you celebrate the way you like to celebrate. And if you're in California, make sure you got home by that 10 p.m. curfew. Uh, but happy Thanksgiving nonetheless. We're entering the holiday season. We're not slowing down. We're not uh, going to stop. We're gonna, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about. Obviously, big news always is coming out. Um, got a big justice or Supreme Court decision coming out from New York, which may lay the groundwork for future COVID lockdown uh, lawsuits that are kind of percolating up through the federal court. As well as other news going on in California, uh, discussions of a recent little uh, feud, I guess you could say, with uh, Major Williams. Um, Some new stuff coming out about him. Maybe it wasn't new. Maybe it was new to me. Uh, But we'll get into that. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of other things as well. What's going on in California, uh, including a unemployment scam that somehow got prisoners and people on death row were able to get... uh, unemployment benefits through COVID relief. But first, as always, let's get started with our out of the gate monologue. With the 2020 presidential election behind us, while not out of our mind, of course, political pundits and observers begin to set their sights on the next big election in California, 2022. In 2022, King Newsom will be up for re-election, if he's not recalled before then. I'm sure there are many people out there who feel that King Newsom will easily win because the Democrats hold a two-to-one advantage over Republicans when it comes to voter registration in the Golden State. However, I believe this election looks to be a little different than 2018. In 2018, Republicans were successful in getting John Cox on the ballot. A surprising feat, indeed, that took the nation by surprise. The idea of a Republican actually running for governor in California, especially with the jungle primary we have, was pretty shocking. However, after a tough fight with Travis Allen, John Cox escaped into the Central Valley and failed to take the fight to Newsom at all. It was no surprise Newsom won handedly when election night came because Cox did little to show the California voters what would separate him from Newsom. Unfortunately for us, he's actually still exploring a potential run in 2022, which I don't think is a good idea. Other challenges are beginning to emerge while we get close to turning the page on to 2021 a run for governor is something that will likely be announced this upcoming winter slash early spring because it's a long road to 2022 and the work essentially starts to begin now as i see it there are two main challengers on the republican side now keep in mind this is a jungle primary so democrats can still run whether they would run against king newsom is something to be determined but i believe it's probably going to be just all republicans The first is a grassroots sensation by the name of Major Williams, formerly named Courtney LaPaul Williams. He has done an incredible job in building a grassroots campaign through social media and growing his brand. He once ran for mayor of Pasadena, but obviously he did not win as he's running for governor right now. He's seen at many events and appears to be a very charismatic and magnetic personality, 
He's appeared on numerous local news outlets and has made it a made it known that he is a, quote, new type of politician running for governor. His stances are textbook conservatism, pro-God, pro-Second Amendment, pro-lower taxes, pro-family, etc. He has made it well known he stands with President Trump down to the use of his campaign logo on a red baseball cap. Now, there's no telling whether this type of grassroots campaign would be successful for governor. I mean, you could always be proven wrong. It worked for Donald Trump, but Donald Trump may be the anomaly. He may be the exception, not the rule. Outside of his run for mayor of Pasadena, it appears Mr. Williams has really no political experience in California. When push comes to shove, he will have to answer how he can manage one of the largest states in the United States. Without political acumen, it could be a hard sell. The second challenger has not officially announced his candidacy, but all signs are pointing to him running. That candidate is soon to be former mayor of San Diego, Kevin Faulkner. Mayor Faulkner stands in stark contrast to Mr. Williams in several ways. Mayor Faulkner has the political experience of running one of the three coastal cities in California. He has shown he can be elected in a coastal city and build coalitions. In 2018, he pulled second behind Newsom without even announcing a run. It is likely he would have the full support of the California GOP if he were to run. His stances are more moderate than Mr. Williams. During his tenure as mayor, he understood he presided over a city which not only boasted enormous diversity, but also bordered Mexico. In the next coming year, there will be a fight to see who squares off against Newsom in 2022. I don't imagine Mr. Williams is going anywhere, and his grassroots following is certainly not to something to take lightly. Now, last time I checked, Mr. Williams had an Instagram following of 155,000 compared to Mayor Faulkner's only 11,000, almost a tenfold advantage, more than a tenfold advantage. This is not to be ignored, and Mayor Faulkner could certainly catch up to Mr. Williams after he announces, but... It is something that plays to Mr. Williams' favor and his strengths. The bigger question that opponents of King Newsom must ponder, though, is how do they create a coalition for one candidate? While it's true that Democrats hold a two-to-one voter registration advantage over Republicans in California, combined Republicans and independents actually hold a slight advantage over Democrats. The next gubernatorial candidate who faces Newsom will have to build a coalition among all three registered voter groups if they are to have a chance. Will a classic conservative like Mr. Williams be able to create that coalition? Does Mayor Faulkner's experience in being elected as a Republican in a coastal city show that he can create such a coalition? Whoever does come out as the candidate to challenge news, and the most important part of success will be to create the coalition effective to take on his political machine come 2022. Because even with the two to one advantage, there are possibilities with the frustration over COVID lockdowns and rules and regulations and obviously laundry gate that there are potential political weaknesses for King Newsom. And I think the right candidate, if they build the right coalition, may be able to just topple King Newsom and bring in a new change to California. The question is, is who's going to be that person to bring all the people together necessary to bring about that change? So I want to talk about quickly the news coming out of the Supreme Court this week, uh, because I think the, the opinion is pretty damning and pretty strong from specifically Justice Gorsuch. Um, It's his concurrence because that really sticks out to a lot of people. I think it has a lot of overarching themes and stuff that if you are an attorney uh, like my firm out there fighting these COVID lockdowns and stuff like that or any of these restrictions, kind of is setting up the stage that maybe the Supreme Court is not really looking are kind of looking at these lockdowns and these restrictions and saying, well, we got to still protect the Constitution here. Um, 
Obviously, the other news is the big lawsuit that was filed. I didn't get a chance to look at the big Kraken lawsuit. I heard it was a 104-page lawsuit. That's a lot to get through. I didn't really even look at a summary. It's it's a lot of fraud and stuff like that. And I think going forward, this is really stuff that interests me because the Supreme Court, as you know, has a new political makeup. It is what they consider is supposed to be 6-3 conservative. Now, I've said in the past that Chief John Roberts has basically turned into what is a new Anthony Kennedy. Anthony Kennedy, uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, was appointed by Ronald Reagan as supposedly a conservative justice. He turned into more of a swing vote over the years. I think he was a member of the Federalist Society, but he turned into a swing vote. You can never really tell where Kennedy was going to land. I think he was the deciding vote in uh, Obergefell, which was gay marriage. Um, so he's kind of always been that way. And I think... When it comes to John Roberts, I'm not crazy about him, especially if he purports himself to be a conservative justice. I don't know how conservative he purports himself to be. I think the uh, Trump appointments have definitely come out as more judiciously conservative. They all come from the Federalist Society approved list, which means that they're originalists, they're textualists, they believe in the Constitution, that this is what it is, this is what the rules say, we're not supposed to be activists. Um, that's the Federalist Society motto. I'm not sure that John Roberts really fits in that mold anymore. He may be trying to play it more in the middle because he is the chief justice. So he's trying to play it a little bit more pliable and amiable to what's going on. And I think he's had a string of decisions that have definitely turned a lot of people on the right against him, saying that now he's a liberal justice and he doesn't stand for these things. Uh, we're going to talk about that in a minute, about what, why did he actually jump in with the what they call the liberal side of the court on this it's more of a procedural issue i don't really see it as he he acknowledged that the argument was wrong i think he is just taking a different approach to it right now um but justice gorsuch came out with firing on all cylinders guns ablazing didn't really hold back i mean it was about this particular case and the history behind it is is in New York, just as it is in California, there have been restrictions on places of worship. And then the issue here is that there are numbers. So in California, there was a Supreme Court case with uh, churches, but they saw the number as good enough in their mind that they didn't they didn't feel the need to overturn it. But here it's so strict that it has to be 10 or 25 people. Some of these churches in New York, like St. Patrick's or anything like that are these really big churches that can fit hundreds and hundreds of people. So if you're saying you can only have 10 or 25 people, that's not a lot of people to have inside for worshiping. And they talk a lot about how Orthodox Jews and Catholics specifically, the two groups that really brought this forward, need the uh, indoor, in-person worship because there are rituals that as a religion, you have to conduct in person. Um for example, communion with Catholics has to be conducted in person. It has to be conducted by a priest. You can't just sit at home and do it yourself. That's not really you're, you're supposed to have the the body of Christ christened and, and presided over by someone of the church. It can't just be you sitting in a room with a, a loaf of bread and some grape juice. So that's one issue that they had was one that the, these specific religious groups need to practice in person. That's part of their religion, part of the free exercise clause. The government really can't get involved in how you practice your religion. That's what the First Amendment protects you. And also that the numbers are not even conducive to allowing anybody to show up at church. 
Uh, so Justice Gorsuch, uh, they did overturn this. It was a 5-4 decision. Roberts went with the four. The five, obviously, you know, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, uh, Thomas, Alito, and the new notorious ACB all joined in the five to support religious liberty. But this concurrence, I think, does set a good groundwork for all attorneys across the country who are bringing up a lot of these COVID lawsuits. Uh, I'm going to read a couple passages for you and go over them with you, and then we'll get into more California news and what's going on. First off, he starts off the whole thing by saying government is not free to disregard the First Amendment in times of crisis. Strong right out of the gate right there. At a minimum, the amendment prohibits government officials from treating religious exercises worse than comparable secular activities unless they are pursuing a compelling interest in using the least restrictive means available. Yet recently during the COVID pandemic, certain states seem to have ignored these long settled principles. That sent that paragraph right there, I think, sets up an argument for Gorsuch. And a lot of times justices get a little coy with this, with their rulings. They, they, they send out these signals because the court has to wait. When it comes to the Supreme Court, a lot of people think, oh, a new Supreme Court's put on there. They're just going to all of a sudden go out and overturn Roe v. Wade or something like that. They can't do that. They got to wait for a court case to actually get to them on the Supreme Court. They have to issue a writ of certiorari is what it's called. So they have to wait. And what they do is they send out these little signals. I think these little signals to litigators in federal court or constitutional attorneys and kind of throw these things out there and say, hey, you know, we're just sending this out there that we're kind of looking for something like this to talk more about this. And and this is our feeling on it. I think it's the same thing like uh Justice Thomas did when he went to a an event and talked about 230 and how he thinks it may be time for us to revisit 230 and its limitations. I think Alito did the same thing with his speech. I think he sent out a little bit of a a kind of message or a little bit coded message saying to constitutional attorneys, look, I don't personally believe that what's going on is right. So if you're out there and your constitutional attorney, Supreme Court's waiting to hear these cases. And I think there's we now have evidence that there's a 5-4 advantage that a lot of these things could probably get overturned. But going on, uh, he goes on to say, at the same time, the governor has chosen to impose no capacity restrictions on certain businesses he considers essential. He's talking about the New York governor, Andrew Cuomo. It turns out the businesses the governor considers essential include hardware stores, acupuncturists, and liquor stores. Bicycle repair shops, certain signage companies, accountants, lawyers, and insurance agents are all essential, too. Uh, and then it goes, who knew public health would so perfectly align with secular convenience? Uh, he makes a little comment about, so at least according to the governor, it may be unsafe to go to church, but it's always fine to pick up another bottle of wine, shop for a new bike, or spend the afternoon exploring your distal points and meridians. He's throwing a lot of shade in this. Gorsuch, who's been kind of quiet this whole time, the fact that he wrote such a scathing concurrence is pretty big deal goes on to say the only explanation for treating religious places differently seems to be a judgment that what happens there just isn't quote essential as what happens in secular places indeed the governor is remarkably frank about this in his judgment laundry and liquor travel and tools are quote essential while traditional religious exercises are not that is exactly the kind of discrimination the first amendment forbids so basically he's coming down hard already and saying you allowed all these other businesses open with basically no cap on how many people can be there, but you've put on these hard restrictions, these hard restrictions on places of worship. 
And that's a problem because we have a First Amendment for this specific reason. We have the free exercise clause of the First Amendment for this reason, so that the government can't go in and start restricting what people are doing. Um, he has another saying, another say, and it says, in far too many places for far too long, our first freedom has fallen on deaf ears. So I think that's a cry as someone who I believe is pretty religious. I think Gorsuch said he was religious um, during his hearings. Most of these federalists are, are pretty religious. Uh, so I can imagine someone like ACB, who obviously we all knew was very religious. I think Gorsuch is also religious. He may be Catholic as well. Uh, now, as we round out 2020 and face the prospect of entering a second calendar year living in the pandemic shadow, that rationale has expired according to its own terms. Even if the Constitution has taken a holiday during this pandemic, it cannot become a sabbatical. Now, I saw that quoted everywhere. That's a great line. Rather than apply a non-binding expired concurrence from South Bay, courts must resume applying the free exercise clause. Today, a majority of the court makes this plain. That's huge for him to say, because what he's referring to is a case out of California, South Bay Pentecostal Church versus Newsom. This was really early on. And, and I can tell you that in our lawsuit against Newsom, he his attorneys quoted this a lot. This and Jacobson, which they also talk about, of course, it rips apart Jacobson. He talks about the difference between that is that. And this was way back in the early stages. We didn't really know what was going on with COVID. A lot of people were still in lockdown. We still didn't really know a lot. We were still kind of getting up to speed when it came to the PPE and um, making sure there's enough hospital beds. I mean, they were still building hospitals and they still had the naval ships. So it's a different set of circumstances, which Gorse is just saying. He said there's, there's times that sometimes you do have to take a little bit of a break, like that in these emergency situations, the constitution um, can take this little holiday, but it can't be forever. And he's basically saying that instead of just going back to South Bay, which every government I'm telling you right now is using as their authority for getting through all these restrictions, Gorsuch is basically saying that the free exercise clause, we're way past it now. It's time to really start looking at reapplying a lot of constitutional provisions, especially the free exercise clause. Um, this is where he goes into Jacobs v. v. Massachusetts. So I'm sorry if I'm boring you with all this legal stuff, but it, it, I think it's interesting so you know what is going on here and I can and, and try and get you through it. Um, Jacobson is a case that's 100 years old, and a lot of states and governments have been using this case from 1905 to basically say, we're allowed to do whatever we want because of Jacobson. That's their rationale. That's their argument. Now, Jacobson involved the smallpox vaccine that somebody didn't want to take it, and they were going to be fined. So they sued, and they got to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, well, we don't think that's really a violation of your constitutional rights. It's such a small hindrance. Therefore, the government can get away with it. And they've been using that precedent, but they always apply the first half of that. They don't always apply the second half of what Jacobson said. And Gorsuch talks about that. He says, to justify its result, the concurrence reached back 100 years in the U.S. reports to grab a hold of our decision in Jacobson v. Massachusetts. But Jacobson hardly supports cutting the Constitution loose during a pandemic. That decision involved an entirely different mode of analysis, an entirely different right, and an entirely different kind of restriction. Uh, so like I said, it was definitely minimal because it was about the idea that could you be fine for not taking the smallpox vaccine? 
that's really what it came down to. You either had to take the vaccine, pay the fine, which was $5 at the time. I think it was 140 in today's dollars or tell them why you're exempt. Um, now, there's been a lot that's happened since Jacobson. There's different levels of what they call scrutiny when it comes to different rights. And I've discussed it a little bit on this show before. Basically, there's different. There's strict scrutiny, which is the hardest to get past. If the, the court finds that your law does not pass strict scrutiny, it's struck down as unconstitutional. It's void. Intermediate is obviously right in the middle. Rational basis is the easy one. If you can see like a rational basis for your decision, then the court usually upholds it. But they apply strict scrutiny when it comes to enumerated rights, such as the First Amendment and the exercise of religion. Jacobson was long before this. So they're trying to use Jacobson to say, oh, well, we get all this authority. In reality, it's not the whole picture. Gorsuch goes on to say, instead, Jacobson applied what would become the traditional legal test associated with the right to issue, uh, exactly what the court does today. Here, that means strict scrutiny. Like I just said, the First Amendment traditionally requires a state to treat religious exercises at least as well as comparable secular activities unless it can meet the demands of strict scrutiny, showing it has employed the most narrowly tailored means available to satisfy a compelling state interest. Uh, go, goes on to talk about continue talking about Jacobson, the difference between Jacobson, even if judges may impose emergency restrictions on rights that some of them have found hiding in the Constitution's penumbras. Penumbras is basically a right that they've read into the Constitution that you can kind of look at the text, but that's what a penumbra is. Rights that they've read out of the Constitution over years. It does not follow that the same fate should befall the textually explicit right to religious activity. Again, basically what he's saying is that Yes, states can impose some of these emergency restrictions on some rights that are not specifically named in the Constitution. The right to religion, though, to exercise religion, that's a number in the Constitution. You got to have strict scrutiny. Um, do, 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 keep going. Here, by contrast, the state has effectively sought to ban all traditional forms of worship in affected zones whenever the governor decrees and for as long as he chooses. Nothing in Jacobson purported to address, let alone approve, such serious and long-lasting intrusions into settled constitutional rights. In fact, Jacobson explained that the challenge law survived only because it did not, quote, contravene the Constitution of the United States or infringe any right granted or secured by that instrument. So, like I said, the reason Jacobson is still technically good law right now and why a lot of states are jumping to use it and a lot of courts are jumping and following back on Jacobson is because in that case, they gave him the authority or the precedence to do these restrictions. However, Jacobson also says that doesn't mean you can go trampling on the rights of people if the rights are enumerated in the Constitution. And that's really the big difference. The free exercise of religion is in the Constitution. Jacobson doesn't give you the power to do so. So we may see I believe we may see in this particular case, we may see a distinguishing opinion on Jacobson and it may weaken Jacobson a little bit more. Uh, it goes on. We have some mistaken this court's modest decision, Jacobson, for a towering authority that overshadows the Constitution during a pandemic. Uh, in the end, I can only surmise that such of the answer lies in the particular judicial impulse to stay out of the way in times of crisis. 
But if that impulse may be understandable or even admirable in other circumstances, we may not shelter in place when the Constitution is under attack. Things never go well when we do. So this is me clapping. Basically, Gorsuch says that all these courts and all these all these litigants are using Jacobson to make it this huge authority, this all uh, this this infallible decision from 100 years ago that they can get away with all these restrictions based on Jacobson. He basically says, no, that's not how it is. And I can only imagine that the reason that courts are kind of keeping their their hands off of this stuff. It's because it's a pandemic. And in the beginning, it was an emergency. We didn't know what was going on. And now he's saying it's time for people to it's time for the courts to get off of the sideline, because if we're just going to let these restrictions go and the courts aren't going to step in and they keep attacking the Constitution, things aren't going to go well for us. So it's better we start to put this down now. Uh, and he goes on to talk about really the procedural aspect of this and what happened. Um, what happened was, is there were people who disagreed with issuing a temporary order or a temporary restraining order on this, this matter, because what happened was in New York, they have these similar to us, these color coded charts of confusion. They were in what they called a orange zone or a yellow zone or something. And the restrictions only applied when they're in red or orange. And right in the middle of this litigation, the governor all of a sudden switched it back to yellow. And I think the court kind of picked up why he did this. He, he put these specific churches back in yellow and it allowed for them to have more people so that his attorneys could say, well, I mean, the, the question's moot now, right? Because obviously there's, there's nothing that we need to do here. I mean, they can let people in. However, Gorsuch is pointing out that you can't do this. And the, and the Supreme Court has basically held this before. You can't just stop what you're doing and say, okay, there's no more case. It's all over. If you have the power to go back and do it again, because these plaintiffs have already brought this case, they've expended resources, time, money, all that stuff to get it to the Supreme Court, argue it in front of the Supreme Court. It's obviously not cheap to go get great attorneys to go to the Supreme Court. And he's saying, we need to issue this injunction now, regardless of whether they're in yellow, orange, red, or whatever, so that the government can't do this tomorrow or next week because if the court decides well we're not going to do anything because it's moot then what what could happen is the governor can go back the next week and say okay well the supreme court denied to hear it so i'm just going to put you guys back in red thereby restricting gorsuch didn't believe in that he thinks that's not the best way to do it kavanaugh also in his opinion opinion said the same thing Gorsuch says it's time past time to make plain that while the pandemic poses many grave challenges, there is no world in which the Constitution tolerates color-coded executive edicts that reopen liquor stores and bike shops, but shutter churches, synagogues, and mosques. So scathing, scathing um, concurrence by Gorsuch. I'll, you know, I like I always put the links in the in the show notes. You can go to the site. It's off the SCOTUS blog. So you can kind of read the summation of what they said, but you can also read the whole thing. It's linked there as well. So big scathing concurrence by Gorsuch. And I think a lot of people agree with him. A lot of people on the on the 5-4. Justice Kavanaugh also agreed with them, sort of, but he, he disagreed with Roberts. So the thing about Roberts, as we were saying, 
Roberts went with five with the four because he, in his mind, said there's no reason for us to issue a temporary restraining order because that's what this all was. This wasn't a case. This wasn't a huge case. It was just the temporary restraining order to stop the ju- or stop the governor from doing these restrictions. He basically his whole argument was, well, there's really n- nothing preventing them now because they're out of that color coded restriction. So thereby, there's really the questions moot. So we don't really need to issue anything. But I think Gorsuch makes a good point, which is we kind of got to get off the sidelines here and stop letting governors throttle and, and turn on and off all these rights. And that's basically what Gorsuch is saying. You've infringed on their rights. You're not allowing them to do what they need to do. Even if you're temporarily allowing them to do what they do, we know that you can go back and turn it on and off. And that's really the issue. So that's why they issued the temporary restraining order. So now that Governor Cuomo is all mad, he's all pissed off. He said it was, you know, making it political. He said that the, the Supreme Court has now become politicized based on the recent decision. I, you know, you look at that and you say that's just that's just the Federal Society constitutionalist looking at it and saying, look, you've infringed on their rights for free exercise. Can't do that anymore. You know, the emergency was nine months ago. We've learned a lot about it. We can figure this out. They can do what they need to do to be safe. It's time for us to get off the sidelines. I think that's the biggest thing that Gorsuch is really saying to a lot of lower courts is it's time for the courts to get off the sideline and kind of step in and protect the Constitution. We'll see how many courts listen to him. I think there's a lot of good precedents here. I think there's a lot of good opinion from Gorsuch. I think a lot of people will be using what he said in here going forward with a lot of lawsuits, especially in California. I think you're going to see a lot of people using this decision, not only in the exercise of religion. I mean, you could use it certainly in the exercise of religion. It sets a good precedent. Um, and we'll see what happens after the case. They may decide and side with them in the end and make it real case law. But I think what he said is very fitting. So I went over a little bit about that, but I think that's important because a lot of people are always asking me as an attorney, they say, well, can they do this? Can they do that? And the sad thing is that a lot of courts are were kind of taking a hands-off approach when it comes to COVID. They're, they're, they're just kind of saying, well, we're going to trust the experts on this. We're not public health officials. We're not scientists, which I understand. But at the same time, governments have a responsibility not to just trample all over your constitutional rights because of pandemic. They have to find the most narrowly tailored solution to addressing the issue of the pandemic while preserving your rights. And I think a lot of governments, especially in California, have not figured out that line. They're way past it. They just go overkill on everything. And at the end of the day, they're, you know, courts are just kind of throwing their hands up saying, well, the public health officials say it's bad. Therefore, we say it's bad. Even if, they, even if you cite to other experts and scientists who say, well, here's our science, they kind of just look at the government officials and go, that's it. We're just going to go with them and we're not going to step in. So Gorsuch, great concurrence. Amazing. I suggest you read it for yourself if you're into that sort of stuff. It's not that long, uh, but it, it is well written and it, you know, it's got a lot of shade in it. That's for sure. He's throwing a lot of shade, not only at the governor of New York, but also all the people I think in the, the whole country who are trying to get away with this stuff. So in other news, uh, I don't want to call it a feud. But there has been a little uh, back and forth between myself and Major Williams. Give you a little bit of backstory. What happened was on our weekly IG Live, Coffee in California Politics, 
a person who showed up on the IG live had, we were talking about just like the out of the gate monologue said, we were talking about sort of major Williams, Kevin Faulkner. It looks like he's getting into the race. Um, and I was just basically saying, well, what's the difference between them? We were talking about the pros and cons of each one. Who do you think has a better chance? Who strategically would be better suited to, to beat Newsom in 2022 in just two years? Uh, really less than two years because it's November. So we're already less than two years from that. And someone had brought up this video that I did not know existed. And it's Major Williams and Joe Collins for this Breath of Life march. Now, if he organized this march in a peaceful way, I, you know, I support it. I think he, it's good for him to talk out about these issues. I don't have anything wrong with that. I think he's allowed to talk about these issues. But it was interesting because you watch the video, his video where he speaks, he's very, you know, he's very eloquent. He knows what he does. He's, he's a good public speaker. Um, he's very charismatic, as I've said before. I've been nothing of complimentary about Major Williams. And but there was another video with him and Joe Collins. Joe Collins was all fired up. Now we could go on a whole rant about Joe Collins, how he's a fraud, how he was Green Party, how he says he hates Trump and that he thinks they need to take Trump down in the past. And now all of a sudden he was a big Trump guy. And it looks like he was just kind of using politics to get his name out there and fame and notoriety. So Joe Collins, I believe, is, is more of a fraud. I think he's not someone to be trusted. That already kind of worries me one. Because they, I, I don't know who said it, but I say you can you can judge a person by the company they keep. And Joe Collins is a obviously questionable character of what his political past. And for him to say bad things about Trump and then turn around and say good things about Trump and pretend he's a Trump guy. Uh, and then at this, you can go see it. First off, you can go watch these two videos. You can just search Major Williams. Uh, Breath of Life March, and the two videos show up. There's one that's six minutes, there's one two minutes where he's speaking. I've also posted on my Instagram, if you want to watch the longer one with Joe Collins, that's on my Instagram. Major Williams has responded, but he also deleted his responses, and we'll get to that in a minute. So the video goes on, Joe Collins is very riled up. In the back, you can see there is someone saying behind him, it says Black Lives Matter, Stockton Chapter. There's signs that say abolish the police, defund MPD. Um, so you look in the you look at the crowd and say, uh, well, you know, that's not necessarily a conservative crowd or not the type of people that I think conservatives really agree with in terms of their political belief, their belief that law enforcement should abolish, that law enforcement's evil. And I just found it interesting because Major Williams did release a campaign ad this earlier this week in front of a courthouse, specifically him saying, well, I'm in front of a courthouse because I stand with uh, law enforcement. And that was his whole thing. I, I stand in this courthouse because I, I stand with law enforcement. So for me to see that video after that, there is a point where Major Williams does yell into the crowd, raise your hand if you know someone who's been killed by police, which that question to me is misleading because to, in my mind, asking a question such as that to say, how many people do you know? How many people know someone who's been killed by the police? To me, kind of implies like murder. And I don't think if there's a justified shooting, I mean, police put their lives on the line all the time. They do have to defend themselves. If someone's coming at them with a gun or a knife or something like that, and they tell them to stop and they're not going to stop, police are trained to put them down. I mean, that's just that's just basic training. 
I know a lot of people on the left are saying, well, you know, Joe Biden, for example, said, oh, shoot him in the leg. Okay, first of all, it's not easy to shoot anybody in the leg. You shoot center mass because you know you have to slow them down or stop them. So to say, ask the question, how many people you know have been killed by law enforcement or police? Kind of a misleading statement, kind of getting the crowd all riled up because they think it kind of implies that law enforcement in his mind or what what that crowd's mind is, is that they're all evil. And that's not a good question. So that juxtaposition alone for me, where you see him at a crowd where he's asking that question and then saying he stands with law enforcement, kind of seems contradictory. I think if someone said, hey, Phil, I know you go around and you ask how many people have been killed by police and you're always asking about police murders and stuff like that, they'd say, well, how do you still support law enforcement? It kind of if that's where the contradiction comes in. Uh, there are other things. Joe Collins says some stuff as well, as well which I'm not going to attribute to Major Williams. Um, but I posted the video. I just posted the video because a supporter and other people on on the live said I had never seen it before. Can you post it? I said, sure, I'm going to post this video. I posted the video, just the video. I didn't post. I was going to do commentary. I ended up not doing commentary. I said, let me just post the video without my commentary. Posted the video and... It started to pick up steam after a while. Uh, more people saw it. More people started to comment on it. And more people started to have questions and, and start to tag Major Williams in the post. Uh, and then in the middle of the, later at night, I had already gone to sleep at that point. I woke up to a bunch of people saying, sending me messages saying he replied. Here's some screenshots, but it looks like he deleted all his comments. So he had gone in that night. And I don't remember what night, I think it was Wednesday night. He specifically went in, commented, replied to everybody. And you could see, you could see a lot of people re- responding to as if Major Williams had commented, but all of his replies were thus gone. So <laughs> at that point you say, uh, okay, so why did he reply to all this stuff and then turn around and delete it? Seems kind of weird. It seemed, and in his replies, he seemed very defensive about everything. He went on the attack. He went on the attack against me. He tried to say it was me just trying to get traction. Obviously, I think he's trying to say that this page or this podcast or stuff like that is doesn't have traction. So he kind of went after me personally and said it, it's like a desperate attempt to try and get some sort of traction, which it isn't, but it was just something someone asked me to do. And I reached out to him that morning. I reached out to him, sent him a nice message saying, you know, I just wanted to post this for my listeners. They brought it up. Let them make the decision. If you feel like you want to respond, we can definitely talk about it. You can respond to me. Um, And obviously he had a problem with the fact that I didn't bring this to him originally. And I can see why maybe, but these videos exist and I think people need to see them. And that was the point. And I guess really what I'm trying to get at is it's something you have followers who come on and they want you to look at something. They want you to get your opinion on something. And if you have a platform, sometimes you share stuff so that people can get their own idea. They can watch it. There are a lot of people who never heard about the video. I never heard about the video until this week. Okay. There are some people out there who knew about the video. I shared it with no commentary and just said, here, go look at it, let you know. But I think what really kind of upset me and put me off was the defensiveness in his his responses. And I think he he kind of got, it sounded cocky or arrogant in a lot of his responses. 
that he said that he, he called me a young man and stuff like that. I'm not particularly young, maybe younger than him, but not a young man by any means. And he tried to talk down to it. He tried to delegitimize the page and say, well, it's just somebody trying to get some attention. That's the name of the game. He's trying to take down a clear Republican front runner. A lot of stuff that seemed kind of cocky and condescending, in my opinion. And to me, that doesn't seem like he's trying to build a coalition. If he wanted to talk about it, he could have just came out and said, hey, you know, I want to talk about this. I'm going to address it. He, he could have had a very political answer. He could say, hey, guys, you know, thanks for bringing this up. I'm going to reply right here. I'm going to leave it here. If he'd done that, I would have made it. I would have pinned the comment so everyone could have seen what his response was. He could have said, hey, these are the reasons I went. This is the reasons I went with Joe Collins. This is my goal. I don't stand for these particular reasons. I don't stand with abolishing the police. Here's what my comments were really directed at. I would have been like, great, let's make that the top comment and we'll just pin it there. Everyone can see it and make the decision for themselves. But I think the information still needs to be out there. But I think to attack someone personally and go after them and say it's only because you want traction or he's trying to get some sort of notoriety. It's like, well, I've been working on this podcast and this page for years now. I I don't necessarily need you to grow it. But if that's your takeaway. Um, it seemed very divisive as opposed to unifying. And I think that's, that's my takeaway. And my takeaway is his defensiveness should kind of put people, kind of put people at pause. And maybe he, he has the right to kind of fight back. You know, we all love Trump because he fights back, right? Um, but I think there's something to be said when you, you delete your comments, when you reply to people, when you call people who are questioning you a racist, um, it kind of brings a lot of questions up and you've only muddied the waters even more by your actions. And that's really something I think people need to think about. So we need to question these people. I, I think you really in California, we can't afford to have people who are running for governor, governor of the state who may not be completely honest in what their purpose is for running for governor. Okay. That's one thing I think we all need to, to focus on. And I've always been complimentary of the fact that obviously he has a great social media following. He has enormous charisma. Somebody commented he doesn't have charisma, but it looks for like from his videos, he has charisma. He's able to get together with people and bring people together. People like him. So I'm complimentary of that. But it does worry you. And I think as opposed to just addressing it and saying, here's what happened and here's what here's where we're going to go from there. Okay, that's fine. But being defensive, personally attacking someone, making it seem like I'm some sort of mud raker or something like that doesn't sit well with me. So the post is still up. I think one of his replies is still there. You can go have a look at it. You can go watch the video on, on my Instagram. It's still there. And make the make the call for yourself. But I think the, the takeaway for this is that you have to kind of look at the person, how they respond to this, and not and to think deeply about who is going out there purporting to represent you and your views. And I think actions speak louder than words. I think the company you keep makes a bit says a lot about you um i think his response was was not unifying at all if he's trying to do the trump thing you know like i've said trump is he i think trump's the exception not the rule he's a he's a unique person 
uh, and Trump did it in such a way against the media, which was obviously lying and trying to do things against him, uh, as opposed to just someone posting a video and say, hey, you, you're in this video. What's, what are you saying? What's your thought about this? Why are you at this, this march? Or, you know, are, those are questions that people need to ask. Um, so, like I said, you can go look at it on Instagram. You can obviously reach out to Major. If you have better luck than I do, I've messaged him. He doesn't want to respond to me directly, which is odd because I've replied to him in the comments. I've sent him a message. He likes to ping back in and out of it, make comments, get some of his friends on there to comment. But he doesn't want to address me personally. I don't know why. I'm just a small podcast. He's got 150,000 followers. So I can see why. But anyway, uh, enough about Major Williams. We'll see where this goes from here on out. He has put up a couple posts. He did have a story <laughs> directly alleging that I had to take a screenshot of that. Something about when people think you went to a BLM march. Um, and you. so it, it seems like even as a small little podcast, in small social media, this has obviously gotten under his skin a little bit. And I don't think he likes the fact that this video exists and he, he seems to push back on it a lot. Anyway, that's the feud with uh, Major Williams. And we'll keep you updated on what's going on. Uh, if he does respond, I'll definitely let you know and we'll go from there. But up until now, he has not responded to me. He does like to ping back and forth. So anyway. Um, there's a couple other stories I want to get to, but I see that there's only like a couple minutes left in this podcast. Like I said, I don't like to get too far over the hour. Uh, I did talk about there was uh, death row inmates who are receiving unemployment benefits, which we can get to in a second. Uh, California Globe had an article about how Harmeet Dillon got the recall signatures wrong on live TV. Harmeet Dillon, if you are not uh, don't know who she is, she's an RNC chairwoman here in California. Very well known. You've probably seen her on Laura Ingram a whole bunch of times. Uh, she takes on a lot of cases nationally. Uh, she's one of the heads of the Trump uh, attorneys for Trump. Uh, she did get the number wrong. Uh, and she it sounded like she was kind of downplaying it a little bit. In reality, we know now that there's 800,000 confirmed signed signatures, signed petitions. So I'll leave that article up for you to read. But it's kind of weird that she got that wrong. Uh, especially when the California GOP should really be jumping on this opportunity. We've talked about that before. California GOP needs to jump on this opportunity with the recall. Uh, let's see. There was a good line in it. Let's see if I could find it. Um, Article says, uh, where is the California state GOP, which endorsed the recall effort early in the summer? Now that the November elections are over, why aren't they putting their resources in every county into the recall? Almost every email the California GOP blasts to their list disparages Newsom. Do they really mean it? Because the state party fully committed to the recall could make a big difference. Um, So I'll post the article. You can read it. So the next article in another unemployment scandal, as if he's not already under enough scandal. It turns out that if you remember Scott Peterson, uh, murderer Scott Peterson and death row inmates are among prisoners who were paid out more than $140 million in COVID jobless benefits in the most significant fraud on taxpayer funds in California history. This is from the Daily Mail. Article goes on to say, convicted killer Scott Peterson, death row inmates, and thousands of other prisoners have together received more than $140 million in COVID unemployment benefits. 
and the most significant fraud on taxpayer funds in California history. A group of state and federal prosecutors on Tuesday warned that up to $1 billion in payments may have been made by the state's unemployment development department to inmates incarcerated California's prison and jails from funds designed to provide financial relief to struggling residents during the pandemic. The shocking revelation led Governor Gavin Newsom to announce the introduction of a task force to investigate and tackle the alleged fraud among the prison population. Uh, under state law, claimants of unemployment debit card must be actively seeking work and be available to accept unemployment. In eight months since the pandemic began, ravaging America and shuttering much of the economy, the state has paid around $110 billion to jobless Californians. The system's overwhelmed with about 580,000 claims, which is down quite significantly, many of which will be legitimate stuck in a backlog. However, while newly unemployed residents have struggled to access the much-needed funds, scammers inside the state's jails and prisons are skirting around the rules through a number of means such as having family members or friends filing claims outside of facilities on their behalf. Um, Article goes on to say, in the letter, a prosecutor's claim a number of notorious inmates have benefited from the COVID relief funds, including Peterson, who was convicted of murdering his pregnant wife, Lacey, and their unborn son back in 2002. Another reported successful claim is death row inmate Carrie Stainer, the convicted serial killer who murdered four women near Yosemite National Park and is currently sitting on death row. Uh, it is not clear if the three murderers filed the claim themselves or if they were filed by someone else under their names. Uh, it just goes on to say, talk about more about who got it, how they got it, um, and basically the level of fraud that has occurred here again you can read the article for yourself but another big screw up on part of the california government this is what happens when you have a over bloated and out of date inefficient government such as california i've said this before i think covid has really in a good way exposed the rot that is going on in california when it comes to the government and how inefficient the government really is. We had 1.5 million people backlogged for unemployment so bad that they actually had to stop unemployment for about a couple of weeks just to get caught up because they're processing so many people. That doesn't help. That obviously keeps throwing counties into purple. People get laid off. Places can't open. Gyms are being shut down, so people have to go back on unemployment, even if they can get unemployment, because you have to be working a certain amount of time to collect unemployment. You can't just go back and forth on unemployment. But it does show the rot and the decrepit nature of the California government. And when you let the government get so big and so bloated, this is what happens. It's not efficient. It obviously is ripe for fraud, and maybe they want it that way. Maybe they think it's good that way, but it's at our expense. It's at the taxpayer expense. That money is really all of our money being paid into it. Remember, the government doesn't really survive off of money unless it comes from all of us and our businesses and stuff like that. So it's our money that's being paid out to death row inmates and murderers and rapists and all this stuff. I mean, we're talking $140 million has been paid out to these prisoners and no they were able to finally catch it but already after 140 million had gone out the window that's a lot of money a lot of money. 140 million can go a long way so it seems no matter it seems no matter what gavin newsom and his cronies and his regime can't seem to really get things right so as much as they praise 
that government is the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wonderful instrument that's going to take us all to the promised land. They can't even process unemployment correctly. And this is the same type of Democrat, far-left kind of Democrat when it comes to Gavin Newsom, who thinks that the government can solve everything, but they can't get unemployment right. And somehow they want to make California the first in the nation to have all electric cars, but they can't get unemployment right. And that's sort of the naivety of people on the left is that the government is this all powerful, all wonderful thing. And if you just give it more power and more money, then they'll be able to really, then they'll really be able to make things happen. But again, in this case, they couldn't even get unemployment right because they sent hundreds of million, over a hundred million dollars out to um, prisoners on death row. So I'll post the article for you there. Uh, it's just more ineptitude. It's more uh, more evidence that bloating the government, making it bigger and bigger and bigger, does not necessarily mean it's going to get better and better and better, no matter how much they tell you. And, and California is a perfect example of we're number one income inequality. Uh, we're probably number one in homelessness in the entire nation. Not great in education. We're in the bottom bottom 10, I think it is for education. And they keep thinking, well, if we just get people more money and tax the wealthy a little bit more, California will just get over that hump and be so much better, which is not the case. Definitely not the case. Uh, There was one last article. It was more of an op-ed, a little bit longer. I didn't want to get to it because this has already gone a little too long. I want to get to the Gorsuch opinion, talk about the little thing with uh, Major Williams because that's all a lot of people out there are Major Williams fans and they want to know about him, what's going on with him, and they follow him. Um, so I just wanted to share my story with that. So with that, I'm going to end the show today. As always, follow me on Instagram, California Underground. That's where I post a lot of stuff, where we have the weekly Instagram live, uh, where we talk coffee and California politics, 9 a.m. every Wednesday. Just log on. You can sit and listen. You can participate, bring up a conversation. See, like this big video that I never knew about, thanks to a call or not a caller, but a follower who jumped in and said, hey, have you seen this before? And here we are talking about it now. So I always like when people are part of what this is. This is a platform for people to come to talk, to share ideas, to discuss things out. This is not supposed to be all about me. If you want to get have, ask a question, you can always go to California Underground at ProtonMail.com. You can ask a question there. You can leave a voice message, which is like calling into the show by going anchor.fm forward slash California underground. You can call into the show, ask a question, make a statement or something like that. And uh, follow me on Instagram for all of the, the updates of what's going on. And until then, have a great Thanksgiving weekend. Hope you have a good time. Just relaxing, kicking back, maybe spending t- some time with family. And I'll see you on the next one. Thank you for listening to another episode of California Underground. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe, like, and review it. And follow California Underground on social media for updates as to when new episodes are available. 